because I had this sort of idea that my products could be the skincare answer to women who previously would have used, you know, those brands that you would use if you thought you were looking for a good skincare brand but didn't know any better effectively but with the benefit that it was natural. So the idea being that it attracted customers because it was beautiful, but it had the benefit of being natural and actually happened to be better for your skin. Hello and welcome to Smart Online Marketing, where I chat to switched on entrepreneurs and experts to chat about smart strategies to build your business in a profitable and sustainable way. My name is Katie Griffin and I am in the digital marketing game. I specialize in Google ads and I've worked one-on-one with clients such as Showpose, Homework Allure and Snuggle Honey Kids. And I also have my own course teaching small businesses how to grow profitably using Google ads. If we haven't met before, I'm a kombucha-loving Real Housewives apologist alongside my love of all things pop culture. And yes, that does include the Kardashians. I'm a mum of two, a self-confessed hippie at heart with a love of all things business. I am so excited for today's guest. I have the lovely Jo who is in New Zealand and she owns Love Skin Oils, which is a skincare company. And she's been running her business for a while now, about seven years, but she originally started off as a police officer. And we talk about the transition that obviously it took from being a police officer to then into running her own skincare business. And... Jo was so generous with her time and also her honesty in this interview and she talks a lot about the challenges she's had during the first few years of business when she was still trying to understand the product to market and who her target market was and how she kind of had to think more strategically about that. But then also some mistakes she's made when it comes to outsourcing and it's a mistake that I see so many small businesses make and it's not a fault of their own at all. But investing heavily in one marketing agency to kind of be a cure-all solution to help grow your business. And we talk a lot about that during this episode and how she managed to transition out of that and how in the last year her business has grown by 540% and the steps that she's taken to achieve that growth. I love talking to Jo. She is phenomenal and I highly recommend you go and check out her products. They are incredible. Her packaging is divine. She has so many reviews about fixing really cranky skin and I think that you're going to love this episode. Okie dokes, Joe. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You are coming to me from the future because you're in New Zealand. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you look bright, I can tell you that. Well, with that, sorry, the future looks bright. Oh, I hope so. It's election day when we're recording this. So let's talk about your business. What do you do and, you know, What's it all about? Uh, So I have Love Skin, um, which I started originally as a kind of, it wasn't even a side hustle. It was more like a hobby. Um, I myself had suffered from um, really bad skin when I was young, which sort of went from bad to worse. So like a lot of young people, I had acne. And then I, you know, I think my mum bought me some, you know, Clarins or one of those uh, Estee Lauder, you know, good brands, but... um, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And so I used that in earnest and my skin went from bad to worse. Um, and I ended up on Roaccutane um, to heal it's my very skin. Very strong. Very strong and also quite nasty. So my skin, the acne healed up uh, eventually, but it also made my skin really dry and it cracked and it was painful. It was horrible. And then sort of after that, I just, I had acne free skin, but it was just never great. Um, and then, uh, probably 
10 years ago, I went and saw a beautician here in um, Wellington who was kind of like a Wellington institution. She um, had been, uh, she had worked for some of the main kind of skincare brands, I think, um, Dermalogica and, um, oh, don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like she'd worked for some major skincare brands that you would know of. Um, and she had come to the conclusion that their products were actually just rubbish um, and that the only thing that your skin really needed was natural oils and so she blended her own oils and she had this kind of apothecary type um, little salon in the back of a kind of old building in Wellington and she had facialed Liv Tyler when she was here for um, Lord of the Rings and Daniel Craig and um, I said oh Liv's got beautiful skin hasn't she and she said I gave her good skin I fixed her skin and she just she made it really mystical and gorgeous, but it was actually also really effective. And um, so I started using her products, which were beautiful, um, and actually just decided to start experimenting largely because I couldn't afford to keep buying them because I'd gone down to, we'd gone down to a single income when I had my kids. I mean, looking back now, it might have been cheaper to just <laughs> fork out for them than to start a whole new business, as it turned out. But, um, yeah, I... Um, started just experimenting with blending oils for myself and eventually started um, sharing them with friends and family. And then I think another friend said, you should start selling these online. And I sort of went, oh, I Googled how to build a website. And yeah, it just kind of grew from there. I think what you say about, you know, you didn't have that great skin as a teenager. And so your mum gave you whatever, you know, Clarins, whatever it was. I think that there wasn't, well, I know definitely when I was growing up that there wasn't this, um, understanding of natural skincare and when I was a teenager it was like Johnson and Johnson or what whatever you use I'm trying to think what are the other one, the other big ones My that kids use that ponds, cold ponds. yes and and then when I moved into I I worked in pharmacy for a while and I that's where I sort of got introduced to more natural products like Jolique and um some of the more natural brands and really loved those and found my skin was a lot better, but I don't think there was the education back then or really even the product range available. It was kind of really niche, a niche um, market. And it's so interesting that, that that's what fixed your skin in the end was having these really natural products. Yeah. Well, I think a large part of that is actually because all of the, there's a lot of misinformation and there was no one who was really in a, like, you know, when you think about the availability of information now, you know, it's easier to challenge kind of societal norms around, you know, accepted thinking, for example, about what's going to fix your skin. Um, in actual fact, the things that we knew about skin or accepted about skin, you know, 20 years ago, are actually just basically wrong. Um, and what does fix your skin for the most part is doing less rather than doing more. Yeah, and it's like um, it's like with going on Roaccutane. I never went on Roaccutane. I was fortunate that I had relatively good skin as a teenager. Uh, but friends of mine did and they had the same thing, dried out their skin and then they had other, other issues. It's treating the like symptom rather than getting to the core of the issue it's kind of get it's like going on the pill to fix a heavy period or something like that rather than focusing on the underlying issues that might be causing the heavy period it's kind of like a band-aid solution for it mm -hmm. but I think that it also shows the effectiveness of marketing that big mm. companies have is that no one really it was they're a big company they've got a lot of money to throw around and they must be good it was kind of like an assumed an assumption that people made they must be good 
Exactly. And I think that once again, that's an example of how, you know, the prevalence of social media and the ability to question norms, like, has changed the way that we even interact with companies like that. Like, in, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you just accepted that because they were a big company and they had lots of money to spend on marketing, it was almost assumed that therefore they had good intentions and they did know. Whereas, like we've almost flipped that whereas now it's we kind of come from a place of suspicion for you know a lot of these things that we're now the information that's now shared in that kind of way um if that makes sense yeah definitely and I think you know before we get any further it's I want to dive in before you started this business because you've got a very interesting background in that you started off as a police officer moved into was it forensic photography and then real estate photography so talk me through how that became this business like what what led you from going from that career to this one uh well I wouldn't say it was a linear kind of path I mean that's self-evident um probably more if you were to sort of if you were to if I were to articulate how it happened it was more this sort of underpinning belief that I can figure it out and I guess um my dad had a business when I was growing up and he I suppose just demonstrated to me that with a good work ethic and, you know, an intelligent approach, you can be successful. Um, And then when I had, as you said, I had a real estate photography business. So yeah, I was a police officer for seven years for the last two years of my career. I was a forensic photographer. And then that sort of, um, I guess, was an easy transition into real estate photography in in terms of a transferable skill set. and then when I had that business, um, it, it was a franchise and it kind of is like, it's like business by numbers. I guess I always had this sort of feeling like I uh, was cheating a little bit or like I just wanted, I wanted to be bringing something into the world that was my own. Um, and like that's, that's in hindsight. At the time, I didn't sort of see that coming. When, to answer your question, how I got there is that I sold my real, uh, real estate photography business just because I'd um, kind of stopped learning in it and I felt like I'd gone as far as I could go. Um, and then we went traveling and then came back and had children and I kind of floundered for a while um, with what to do with myself. How old were your kids during that point when you were floundering? Um, so I think I started, um, well, I, I started floundering from the outset of having children and then I think when my youngest was... Um, maybe like preschool, I started working part-time. But as you probably know, like being a mother yourself, when you're doing something part-time, it becomes this real trade-off in the sense that you have to love it enough to justify taking the time away from your family to do it. And even if you want to do something to feel like you're being useful or you're sort of utilising your skill set or you're keeping your hand in or whatever it is, unless you love it, it just doesn't feel worth the sacrifice and the kind of additional pressure it puts on your family. And, and I think also, just sorry to interrupt, I think also you're expected to do full-time output a lot of the time in a part-time capacity and a part-time wage. And so a lot of women run into that trouble where they'll, they'll get squeezed a five-day-a-roll you know, position into a three-day-a-week role mm. and it makes them even more stressed. They're underpaid for the role. They're having to do outside hours work and it becomes this real conundrum. Do I keep going down this path or do I create something for myself and 
it does become like a crisis. You're at a crossroads. What do I do? I either have to, I may as well work full time if I'm going to put in that effort anyway and get paid adequately for it. And the hard part also is, is if you're changing you're changing jobs during, in the midst of having children, there aren't a lot of great part-time roles available. You have to kind of have done the hard yards of going to a full-time role, then be able to negotiate, have the negotiation power to pull that down to part-time role. But if you're going into part-time straight away, there's really not a lot out there that, that treats women how, that are educated and smart, but just want to take a step back in terms of time. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. um, I'm just reading Michelle Obama's book and she says um, you end up feeling like you're not doing anything particularly well because you're not a great, you're not able to be a great mother because you're stressed or you're not present and you're not, you're not doing particularly good job in your role because like you say, you're being sort of asked to do too much for the time that you have available or yeah. So yes, I sort of went through that whole thing. But the one good thing that came out of that was that I had a client who himself was a businessman. And um, I had been contemplating buying another franchise just because it was what I knew. And um, I happened to mention that I potted around with skincare. And he was like, well, what are you talking about buying someone else's business for? He was like, you'd be amazing. And he said, it's not even a great business that you're looking at buying. Just like put your energy into what you've already sort of started. And um, he, I think, just gave me the confidence to... I guess back myself for want of a better term. I don't like that term very much. Um, <laughs> Maybe he just gave you the a kick up the bum. Yeah. Okay. Let's roll with that. <laughs> That's a better one, isn't it? Not really. <laughs> more accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, so from there, I did. I sort of um, told my partner that um, you know I was going to really start working on love skin in earnest, um, which I guess is now sort of six years ago. Wow. And okay, you, you, you're at the point where you're going to see this lovely apothecary, whatever the word is, apothecary yeah. lovely um, woman. And, but you think, I want to go down this path myself. I've, you started mixing oils and friends loving it. What, like, what, how do you actually work on formulations and packaging and getting it manufactured? And like, how does that all come together? Yeah, well, uh, to start with, it wasn't manufactured. Um, it was just me literally, um, like, making the product myself. Um, in terms of the formulations, I created them myself just based off um, what I found out when I did my research and, um, you know, reading lots of books and doing lots of Googling. And um, and I originally made my own, like, had my own labels made. I'd sort of gathered a few skills around... Um, uh, I was going to say desktop publishing, and that's not <laughs> um, graphic design um, from my photography background. And so I sort of made a few, made some labels and sourced some bottles. And so it was all kind yeah. of like just grabbing what you could and putting it together. Yeah, yeah. I um, I don't remember it being a real hustle. Like it was sort of just like an evolution, I suppose. Um, and then at a certain point, I realised that my own kind of graphic design skills really went up to the mark, and so I did get an um, some like a professional. And yeah, I think from there, I simultaneously probably created a Facebook account and set up a website. And at that time, Shopify wasn't even around, so um, I did it through WordPress. Mm. Which was quite technical at that mm-hmm. time. So, like, it didn't have heaps of plugins. It had WooCommerce, but it wasn't 
intuitive and yeah so it was it was pretty it was a pretty clunky kind of process I would say I don't think people realize that it wasn't it wasn't as easy just to get something up and running as it would be today like there's been a lot of technological advancement that's happened that's allowed that to kind of be relatively straightforward now but WordPress that's a steep learning curve because it's really it was designed for developers originally and like that you can do a lot wrong on it because you're essentially in charge of your own website yeah, I had um, sort of somewhere along the way, I picked up someone who was a WordPress, ex- not expert, but he could code and that sort of thing. And so a couple of times I sent him like SOS messages because the site had crashed and I had no idea why and he was able to kind of talk me through it. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I was completely on my own. And um, and yeah, I just kind of bashed my way through it. Like um, you, you can find out a lot on Google and make it work if you're kind of prepared to just take a well, it might not be perfect, but it'll work approach. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say it was elegant, but it functioned. And you got your website up. How long is it before you get your first sale? And how do you get that first sale? Is it purely friends and family at that stage? Yeah, I think at first it was purely friends and family. And then I remember having a friend, like a friend of a friend who had um, sensitive skin and she reached out to me. I think the friend might've mentioned that I was doing something and that I could be, I might be able to help. And I think she was the reason I started creating the sensitive blend was literally for her. Um, and yeah, it, it just kind of, I wouldn't say it blossomed in the sense that I didn't really have an appreciation of the need to market. I kind of had this more of the, if you build it, they will come mentality. Um, but through getting the designer, I did start to put together and having a photography background, I did start to put together like quite a cohesive, elegant, um, which I just said it wasn't, but I think it started to become more, you know, aesthetically pleasing. And so it did ultimately start to attract people who I wasn't related to or didn't know sort of personally. Did you do any of like the market circuit to get? And was that a a big part of your early sales? And I think um, kind of, at that time, I was a little bit um, naive, maybe is the right word, to the fact that when you have a little business like that, there's just literally a lot of people looking to make some money off what you're doing. And so you'll get kind of, you know, approached to do a lot of things. And so I think I just did a lot of things to start with because I was asked and I didn't um, I didn't have a strategic approach as such. What um, do you mean you did a lot of things? Like, Well, I did a lot. I did markets. I think I did some of those like gift boxes. Where, yeah. Okay. Like giveaways or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I did stick with the kind of higher end markets. Like I didn't kind of do the, like in Auckland where we were living at the time, they had more niche markets as opposed to just, you know, your kind of classic country fair type ones. So, um, and that was a learning curve too, in the sense that I had always wanted to position my products as, um, because I had this sort of idea that my products could be the skincare answer to women who previously would have used L'Oreal or Estee Lauder or, you know, those brands that, you know, you would use if you thought you were looking for a good skincare brand, but didn't know any better effectively, but with the benefit that it was natural. So the idea being that it attracted customers because it was beautiful, but it had the benefit of being natural and actually happened to be better for your skin. So I guess I learned that doing those markets, I I had to start to think about my brand positioning because people who attend markets tend to be 
a bit more earthy and they are the kind yeah. of people who make their own skincare and make their own, you know, kombucha and all of those things. And so they weren't really my target market. And so I did need to start to think a bit more strategically about how to position myself and how to attract the people that I wanted to attract to the brand. So you started in around about 2013. At what point do you think that you started to become more strategic? How far along were you in that, in the business? I think it took me a while. Like I, um, I think that um, for a long time also because I was also a mother, it was kind of a thing that I did when I didn't have the kids. It wasn't like I'm working on my business now. As much as I set out to do that, um, I guess I was a little bit intimidated by what it actually would take to really properly push my business out in front of people. And um, so to answer your question, I think probably, you know, it took me a good two or three years to start to really start to really consider some of those things. But in that time, I had also made some quite kind of strategic contacts as well who started to help me. I met a girl who kind of at that point helped me do like a brand refresh yeah, so we did a brand refresh and actually started to make the brand look more like the target demographic that we wanted to that we wanted to start to attract, which I'm like I suppose you have to contextualize this in the sense that all of this sounds really obvious now, but like you alluded to, it's really only in the last, I don't know, three or four years that all of this has become something that is easily and readily available in a nice little package by someone like Greta Van Riel, who does this, you know, this fantastic course about kind of e-commerce marketing from A to Z, you know, from ideation to product to market. Um, So things like product to market fit were all quite new to me. Um, And yeah, it wasn't a fast process. I don't think it is like, I don't think it is an easy, an easy process, especially when you're doing everything else. Like you're, doing the formulation, you're doing the, the making of the product, you're doing the marketing, you're, it's, it's your baby, but you're having to do everything. So it, it sounds obvious in hindsight, but that's because you had brain space to probably dedicate you, to other areas. Whereas as business owners, you don't often have that luxury to just sit down and spend a whole day thinking about who's your target market. And even though they're really key things to do, you're just on moving forward, you're in motion. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, what you sort of pointed out there too is like I was making, it was like literally kind of, what they say, soup to nuts. Like I was sort of really start to finish with the whole thing from nothing to making the product. It wasn't like from the outset I outsourced any aspect of it. It was all me. Um, and I think even if it was just a product to make, to take to market, that would have been a different thing. But from the outset, I was, I had in my mind that it was going to be bigger than just a, me taking it and selling it at markets type product. Yeah. You didn't want it to be a hobby forever. You kind of yeah. wanted to make it more streamlined. So was that the impetus to then go and outsource some services to other people? Because you've mentioned to me that you had some quite bad experiences when you were going to get help in things like marketing or um advertising and things like that. So at what point did you realize that you wanted to take some stuff off your plate or hire, outsource, delegate to someone and pay them for it? Yeah, it wasn't um, so much that that was me looking for someone else. It was that they came to me. Um, So um, I had like a a marketing person from a um, 
full service agency. So they do, you know, um, they help create the strategy, they help create the content and they market the content and the idea being that you obviously grow your, um, well, you grow your brand platform and in doing so you grow your sales um, and then the sky's the limit kind of thing. And I think by that stage I'd been at it for a while and kind of plateaued in my own ability to really gain any sort of meaningful traction. Like I was getting sales and it was consistent, but it wasn't what you'd call successful or even really kind of, um, accept, well, it wasn't growing. Um, and so, yeah, they approached me and they kind of gave me these really amazing numbers, which now looking back, I sort of think I just got completely wooed and really sold um, on something that in reality was never going to happen or certainly never going to happen with them. Um, and so that started the journey of me kind of going, well, it once it coincided with a number of things. My partner, um, who, as I said to you before, has a massive job, um, moved, we were living in Auckland and he moved to Wellington to work for nine months um, down here um, to take a promotion. And we stayed, myself and the kids, um, in Auckland. And these people came on board. We committed to spending the money to engage with them. And it just never went well from the start. But because of everything else that I had going on, i.e. the fact that I still had to effectively run the business and be a mother and my partner was away, I didn't, um, I guess I just buried my head in the sand. I didn't sort of take a proactive approach to managing them um, because I just thought it became a case of throwing good money after bad. I kind of went from, oh, this is not going well to this is going to pick up to, well, now I'm so far in that if it doesn't pick up, I'm really in trouble. Um, and it actually, we then through that process or uh, well, during that process, we moved down to Wellington and we were, had been in our new house down here for about three weeks. And I got this kind of clandestine anonymous phone call from someone to say that that business was going under and um, I needed to get my, you know, get all my stuff and get out as soon as I could, which precipitated obviously the end of the relationship, which had to happen. Um, but um, yeah, it was a really awful time. Like, first of all, that's a horrible experience to go through. And I think my frustration, I get so frustrated with these situations where a full service agency relies more on being a salesperson rather than actually being the ability to follow through on that. And I've worked agency side as well. And, um, and we'd have clients often leave us for full service agencies. And the reason I don't like full service agencies is that there's very few agencies that can adequately tackle all the areas of the marketing pie and do all of them well. Usually it'll be someone that's really good, like an agency that's really good at branding. They'll have one flagship product, really good at branding, but then they'll add on these other um, services so that people are locked in with them because it's really hard. It's like a bank. Once it's once you're in with someone with Facebook ads, Google ads, branding, graphic design, whatever it is, the more services you have, the more locked in they are with you. But it's very hard to have people on your team that are good at all of those. And the amount of times that when I was agency side and worked for an agency, we, um, we would have clients that would leave us for a full service and then come back three months later. Cause they were like, everything they promise us, they can talk a big talk, but it, a, 
the delivery wasn't there. And I think that's a lot of what gives the marketing industry a really bad rap is those type of agencies that do rely more on the ability to have a really good presentation. And, you know, they, they tell you all these amazing things and they lock you into contracts that are like, I, I purposely with clients, I have month to month, like month to month fees. I don't lock into contracts because first of all, if it doesn't work for me anymore, I want to be able to say it was great working with you, but we need to move in different directions. But also from the business perspective, they need to have that right as well. And I just don't understand how a business can operate with integrity and just take money and not do anything. Yeah, and I also think um, from what I learned of the process going through all of that was that their model necessarily means that the more successful that they get, the less time that they have to devote to you. And if you think about all the intricacies of your business and, you know, even now with kind of having a few people working to support me, like there are elements to the business that only I know and I can articulate it to someone but unless they're really focused and paying attention to the subtleties, it can get lost in translation or it can get lost in the way that they market it. Um, and the whole sort of like the, the focus of the brand gets lost. And um, yeah, so I also have a problem with the model in the sense that I just think that, like I say, the more successful they get, the less time they have to devote to your business, which necessarily means that they're ultimately going to become less effective potentially. Yeah, and I think when, particularly when you're a small business, the reality is that no one will know the intricacies like you do. And so I think that you do need to have some level of knowledge of what you're outsourcing. Otherwise, it can be really easy to have someone say, throw a bunch of, throw a report at you each month and think that they're doing a great job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was what I learned really was one of my mistakes was not behaving like a manager I made the assumption that they knew better than I did about these particular areas largely because I didn't have knowledge specifically of you know just the different kind of terminologies and specific areas and the way that the you know dashboard looks on Google ads or Facebook ads I, I didn't understand any of that then and so I just made the assumption that they knew that and that they were doing a good job at it um and sort of obviously they're able to kind of not manipulate, but certainly talk up what they're doing and why it's not working. And I heard a lot of, oh, yeah, well, we're just buying data at this point and, we'll, you know, we're just going to buy the data and optimise. And, like, honestly, now what I know, it's just a line. Like, you hear that so much um, in those sort of, those environments of, like, oh, yeah, well, we've, gonna, we've got to spend money to make money and it's going to cost us a bit up front. And, sure, it can cost a little bit, but it doesn't have to cost you know, lots and lots for months and months if no. they think something's going wrong. So how did you take that experience into the next time? Because I know now you have people that you use for mentoring or on, on your virtual team that you can rely on. Mm-hmm. Did you find you were burned from that experience when you went to then outsource the next time? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, to talk about like how I climbed out of that, I think I for probably a month I just went into complete shutdown in terms of just really pulling my circle of kind of communication and just even what I was doing I just pulled it right in tight back to what do I know like what can I control 
And, you know, because there was my partner and I had a conversation about, well, do I keep going with this business now or should I just give up and go and get a job? Um, I mean, the reality is that I had to borrow money to engage these people, which I, you know, I have an obligation to continue to pay back. And it was like, you know, they hadn't actually made any impact on my, like, my sales. They'd, um, I'd not gotten any better out of, um, of working with them. So um, it really was a case of sort of starting from scratch now with debt. So um, I kind of took the approach of, well, I just need to know where I'm at to start with. And I need to start to measure these things myself. Like there was, you know, lots of numbers that were put in front of me and there were lots of, there was lots of, um, lots of things that I still didn't understand about the business. And so, um, yeah, I started out by setting up a spreadsheet and looking at exactly what my costs had been, what my sales and revenue had been month to month. And then I set up, um, you know, what I projected revenue, what I wanted to get to for like the next five years. And then I started to, um, listen to podcasts as a way of just starting to learn like the things that I didn't know. Um, someone who I had connected with had done a Facebook ads course online. Um, and so I sort of forked out the last bit of money that I could to do that Facebook ads course and just started to turn things around from there. Um, and within kind of a month, the Facebook ads had really started to have some traction and make some, make some money. Um, and yeah, so I, I guess to answer your question, initially I just pulled it all back in house and did it all myself and kind of went, well, I've got to figure this out now. I'm like, I've sort of my capacity to get somebody else to take care of it for me is com- completely exhausted because I just, I didn't trust anybody. And, mm. and, you know, I continued to sort of be shown, I think that ultimately, like you say, no one does know your business better than you, but it's also really important before you outsource to have an appreciation of what it is that you're actually outsourcing because there's just so many ways that you can be uh, deceived is a strong word, but I agree. I think deceived. Yeah. I think so. Like that, that was one of the reasons why I, I started my course was that I was sick of seeing small businesses getting taken for a ride by agencies that could speak a big game but couldn't deliver on their promises and that this is a learnable skill and it's it's a hill you you have to go up but once you're there you don't have to pay recurring fees to get to have someone manage your ads for you if you're willing to put in the hard work to learn it yourself yeah and so I want to talk about the good part of the last you say that Love Skin has grown 540% just this year, which mm. is phenomenal. Mm. And I think that if you haven't already, you should take the time to look back and think that is like, that was you. Like yeah. you have put in the work to upskill and to learn and you should be really like, are you really proud of yourself? Do you give yourself the space to, to pat yourself on the back? Yeah, I do. I think <laughs> I'm a pretty hard marker, but we did, um, cause I have a little team now and we went on, um, like our, it was an early Christmas trip over to one of my stockists who, um, uses love skin in her salon. She has a beautiful salon in a place called Greytown, which is kind of a little boutique town just over the hill an hour away from us. And so she had been dying to, um, do a facial on me using my products 
which was almost a surreal experience to go to like this gorgeous salon that people pay, you know, good money to go and have a facial experience with her. And she's using the products that I created from scratch in my, you know, in my kitchen. It's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I, like I do have to take those moments to just, and it is important as you say, to take those moments to just pat yourself on the back. And yeah, so in the last year I've grown 540% and I doubled my revenue in two months. Once I started, um, as you mentioned, I started working with a coach, um, who we both know, Lisa. And she's um, incredible. Yeah. So I started, I, we had lockdown here for seven weeks and um, over that time, my partner who works for government was going into work and working kind of 16 and 18 hour days. And I was here with the kids and um, because I have um, like my business is home based, I was able to continue to trade for most of lockdown. Um, So yeah, that was kind of a bit of a crazy time with, him not being here and me doing the kids and homeschooling just didn't happen, I'm afraid. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then they learned a lot about business, I'm sure. <laughs> well, um, I think they learned that mums like, I think I like to think that they're learning by observation. They're not hmm, learning so. anything at this point, but certainly they're saying that, you know, hard work pays off. Um, and yeah. And then because I had already started my Facebook advertising, my return on ad spend went through the roof, um, which you'd kind of have to be a little bit cognizant of where everyone else is at. I think there's no, you can't really shout your sales from the rooftops or sort of advertise your product too strongly when everyone's going through, you know, a pretty tough time, but certainly the sales went, you know, accelerated because I could continue to trade. Um, so that sort of caused a little spike in my, well, a little upward trajectory in my kind of growth curve. And then by the time lockdown finished, I started to kind of really panic because I was quite busy and it was still just me. Um, And so I had listened to your podcast um, and I found you just to backtrack a bit because I did another um, Facebook ads course after I did that one that I initially told you about. And you don't know this, but people were on that course asking if there was a because his Facebook course is really good, but they were asking if there's a Google ads course that's as good as his Facebook course. And someone mentioned your course, which is how I found you. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, cool. Eh? Um, and so I started listening to your podcast just to get to know you a little bit better. And in listening to that, I heard your interview with Lisa Byrne. And so after hearing that, I messaged her and we connected and I said, um, this is kind of where I'm at. And I was freaking out. And um, I said, what do you think? Do you think you can help me? And she said, I think I can help you double your revenue in two months. And I went, oh, okay. I said, and of course, having heard some pretty big claims, I said, that's a pretty big claim. And she said, yeah, I know it is, but, you know, I'm, I'm confident of it. And then she led, like, you know, I've, you've probably been on sales calls yourself, and I certainly have where – if you don't kind of commit then and there, then the, you know, the person trying to make the sale gets a little bit grumpy with you. Whereas I was like, look, I've, you know, I've been down the road with these sort of things before where people have made big claims. I really just need to take some time to process this. And she's like, yeah, of course, go and, you know, talk with your partner about it or do whatever you need to do to, you know, make sure it it needs to feel right. And I was like, okay. And so, yeah, I worked, um, decided to work with her and yeah, within two months we doubled our revenue again. 
Wow. Yeah. So you've kind of built up a team of more people that you can trust. And just quickly before we wrap up, because I could talk to you forever, this is just so fascinating. What do you think the key things have been to that growth? Uh, Certainly the social media advertising was a big part of it. And it was juxtaposed with having some really good reviews um, on my product specifically, um, which I, you know, started to capitalize on. I think, you know, in the kind of um, higher level sense, just having an understanding of, um, like having an understanding of how it all fits together, all the component pieces around the marketing in terms of your funnel and your, you know, your product to market fit and how you present your products. Um, Just really making sure from my point of view that all of that was really cohesive um, in terms of the customer journey. Um, And, and then just really learning that I do know my business better than anybody else. And if you can get this far in business, you can figure anything out. So I guess learning to not be quite so afraid of, like you say, learning a new skill set like Google Ads, for example, um, like rather than sort of thinking I need someone to do this for me, taking the approach of if I'm going to outsource it, I need to know what they're doing so that I can hold them accountable if they're not doing a good job. Yeah, I love that. And I think also people underestimate the the you being involved in the front advertising side of things, like knowing how to run your Facebook ads or your Google ads, it actually does help the rest of your business because you do think in a numbers mindset, you can think more about your margins, you know more about it. You can take those learnings and really use them in other areas of your business as well. And it is such an empowering, like I'm sure that you would have felt so empowered by the fact that you've been sold this dream by an agency that's promised you the world, given you nothing and you've paid a lot of money to you've been able to take a couple of courses and get a trillion times better results than you ever did. And they're not skills that are just available to people with a marketing degree or that have a fancy office. Like you in your lounge room can master the ability to do your Facebook ads, your Google ads. And that once you have learned how to do the acquisition side of your business, like it's such a uh, empowering place to be. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think, it's kind of like there's nothing now that you can't you can't kind of conquer things get thrown at you in small business all the time and as long as you've got a kind of I can figure this out mindset which you know becomes more and more self-evident as you go along the um the like the more confident that you become yeah well I have just loved talking to you thank you so much for coming on can you please tell people where they can shop for your products and follow you online oh thank you Katie it's been really um a pleasure um so you can find love skin at loveskin.co uh, and on Instagram and Facebook at loveskin oils thanks Joe thanks Katie I hope that you enjoyed that episode just as much as I love talking to Jo. I think that she was so open and generous with what she was willing to share. And I am like blown away by how much she's been able to achieve since going through a really hard time in her business. 
All the links are in the show notes, so make sure you do check her a follow on Instagram and connect with her online and shop her products. If you want to connect with me, I'm at katiegriffin underscore on Instagram and my website is sundaydigital.com.au and I will talk to you in the next episode.